This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSE published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, you always talk the game about citizenship and how social studies is a practice of citizenship, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And what does it look like in your classroom? You know, I don't even know if I have a great answer to that, but I tried to figure it out. Um, when I did my dissertation, what I studied was my own students. So I taught AP US, gosh, I should know the, the class I taught, AP US Government and Politics was the yep. name of the class. I could have told you that. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. And so it's usually I just refer to it as U.S. government. That's why I got caught up. And so teaching that class, I always thought, you know, these are seniors who've had social studies classes their whole K-12 career. And by the end of it, like they really should have some like ideas of what types of citizens they're going to be. And this class is specifically focused on government, which civics on some level is like the heart of it. Right. Like we study history to be more informed about what's happening and how things got to be the way they are and what possibilities there are for change. But civics is like, Hey, go do it. You know? And so I was really, yeah, it should be. And so I was always really concerned with my students about whether they actually viewed my class as being about citizenship. And I made a lot of efforts to do stuff in our class that I thought related to citizenship from, you know, having like standing in front of the class on speakerphone and calling like Harry Reid's office to like discuss some issue. And then Which we talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I think I always use it. Harry Reid's office was the rudest one I ever called. Um, they thought like I was calling for some specific thing and they were very skeptical, which was a bad look for them. And so, you know, we tried all these things. And so I did, when I interviewed my students and talked to them about it, I realized that they still, despite all my efforts, didn't really view my classes being about citizenship in the ways they connected to, which I kind of think makes sense, right? Like kids don't think about partisan politics like adults do. Okay. I don't know. What, what do you think? Like, do you feel like you're able to make strong connections to what citizenship is in, in your classes? It's hard because even thinking about what citizenship is, is a, is a difficult thing or what does it mean to be a citizen, right? It's not just doing jury duty because you have to. Um, although I really want to be a foreman, like that's all I ever wanted. And I actually called one time saying, listen, I really want to do jury duty. And they said, stop calling. That's weird. Yeah. That's because it's my dream. But I feel like there's also like being updated into what's going on locally, because that's probably where most of the, the stuff happens. It's also, I'm, I did AmeriCorps for a few years. And so like active citizenship, like being a participant in, in the community, like that's also a part of it. Um, now translating that to the classroom, I feel like is kind of difficult. And I know that there's service learning projects, which I really need to look a little bit more into because I feel like that would uh, strengthen my game and what I mean by an active citizenship, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. But I think this is a question social studies teachers should be asking, right? It's also hard because I don't, I teach history. I teach 
like there's no civics class in my in my school, right? So I'm teaching the content, which is my you know world history two and in American history one, uh, and so trying to like embed the citizenship into it or embed the civics into it, it's almost haphazard because it's also you have all this other stuff to do. So that's an added layer to our already complex, well, situation where civics is just being tossed in the back burner if it's even there. Right. Right. I'm very upset about this. So fortunately, we have somebody here today who can help inform us about different ideas about citizenship that can exist within classrooms. And now even who we are can really influence as teachers and, and uh, can influence, you know, what it looks like to do citizenship. And so we'd like to welcome to the podcast, Amanda Vickery. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on, Amanda. It's great to have you <laughs> here. <laughs> Virtually. Amanda- <laughs> Virtually. Yeah. Virtually. Uh, Amanda, do you want to tell us a bit about your background as an educator? Yeah. So I am an assistant professor of teacher preparation at the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. I teach both undergraduate and graduate courses in elementary social studies methods. But I am a former middle school history teacher. I taught in Pflugerville, Texas, which is north of Austin, between a rock and a weird place. <laughs> little te- Texas humor for you. Um, but I originally grew up in the suburb south of Dallas, Texas. Um, and just thinking about me and why I became a teacher, why I do this work, um, I've always loved history and learning about the past. And so becoming a history teacher was always seemed natural to me and something that I've always wanted to do. Actually, I did want to be Indiana Jones, uh, but in the end, teaching was a much better fit for me. He seems like he's a terrible professor, too. Like he I don't does. think he I don't think he did anything. He did not have his office hours. Uh, I don't know if he published, but he definitely didn't perish. He did not, but he <laughs> you know went on cool adventures and yeah, you know what? But at the end, you know, teaching was a much better fit for me. Um, <laughs> by, by the by the way, Amanda, in episode sixty four, Michael has the idea that we should just dress young kids up like first graders as Indiana Jones <laughs> and send them that. around to ask historical questions to people. That was his idea. So if you didn't catch that in 64, that was the one with Anna Lisa Halverson. So I think it's brilliant. It's something. (laughs) Let's let's make this happen. Hey, I volunteer for that. Um, But yeah, so I mean, I grew up in a family of nerds. I mean, our summer vacations consisted of traveling to historical sites throughout the U.S. and memorizing state capitals and the U.S. presidents on long car rides or at the breakfast table. But thinking about my school experiences with history, it was my 11th grade U.S. history teacher who really inspired me to pursue teaching. He truly made history come alive. He made it interesting, and you could really tell that he loved what he was doing. But I do remember this feeling that the narrative that he was presenting was incomplete, that it was told from a perspective of white, Protestant, heterosexual, uh, wealthy men, and it was missing the diverse voices of people of color and, and women. And so I wasn't able to see myself reflected in the curriculum. But I remember that we were coming to the one chapter in a very, very thick U.S. history textbook about slavery. And I remember thinking, yes, finally, we're going to learn about people who look like me, my ancestors. Uh, and so the day came. I was excited. I was ready. I had read the chapter. And so I was ready to discuss it. But then the teacher in class announced that we were skipping that chapter on slavery and that we were moving on to the chapter to the lead up to the Civil War. Uh, And yeah, and so I was devastated. Um, And that experience has stayed with me thinking about like my teacher's decision that day to silence my history. And I never asked him why he made that decision. I mean, perhaps it was because it was an AP U.S. history class and he didn't think that the information would be tested and therefore didn't 
warrant teaching, which is very problematic, or perhaps it was because he was an older white man and the idea of teaching about slavery to mostly students of color was uncomfortable to him. So yeah, so that moment kind of made me realize that teaching is political and the decisions about what to include and exclude has serious ramifications in terms of issues of power, representation, recognition, but then also how students see themselves within the historical narrative as citizens of this country. And so this got me thinking about the narratives that we teach and we privilege in our classes, and it really helps students in the development of their civic identity. And then learning about our collective history is so important in shaping a person's sense of belonging and how they see themselves as U.S. citizens. And this is especially true for uh, students who come from diverse backgrounds whose community knowledge and experiences have been ignored or misrepresented within the U.S. historical narrative. And so that experience remained with me when I was a middle school teacher, history teacher myself, And in that space, I was one of the few black teachers at the school. It was a Title I school. And it was troubling to see how that the the few black teachers we were positioned as outsiders within the school and how our expertise, our intelligence and our experiences were questioned. They were ignored or seen as trivial by the other teachers and the administrators. And so my colleagues in my grade level department They refused to listen to me or my desire to teach a more complex and diverse narrative of history. And they instead tried to pressure me into teaching the history that they taught, which was that the Civil War was fought over uh, states' rights instead of slavery, or the happy slave narrative where there are slave masters who weren't that bad. And uh, Gone with the Wind is a movie that we should teach to our students so they can learn about slavery. Very problematic. And so I rejected that version of history. And so a friend of mine, another black teacher, they, we decided we weren't going to teach that kind of history. We were going to teach the kind of history that we wanted to teach. How did that, how did that conversation go? Or was it a conversation? Was it a situation where you closed your doors and did what you knew was right for your students? Or was it one where you were able to get some kind of traction and, and push back against what other teachers were you know, including in the curriculum? Yeah. So basically my first year, my first semester, you know, as a first year teacher, you're kind of just trying to keep your head above water. Uh, I was literally a page ahead of my students. And so I realized that I wasn't the kind of history teacher that I wanted to be. I was teaching the kind of history that my other colleagues were teaching and my students were not responding to it. And so second semester, I did kind of like a fresh start. I decided, you know what, this isn't the kind of teacher I wanted to be. So then I you know, I did some more research, I drew on my, you know, the classes that I took in college on black history and women's history and Chicano history, Chicana history. And so I infused that into my classes, because my students first semester were asking, where are the Latinas? Where are the where are the blacks? You know, we're we're only seen, you know, dying in the America in the Boston massacre, Christmas addicts, or we're slaves, or we're fighting for civil rights, but there's got to be other stories, other narratives. And so I noticed that when I did change, uh, my students really responded to it. First, I tried to talk to my other colleagues like, hey, I'm trying this activity. My students seem to really like it. And they just, they kind of didn't want to listen to it. And so I just shut my door and my students were really responding to it. And over time, you know, the things that we were creating, we would hang it outside so my students could see their work on the walls or students were talking in the hallways. And I got in trouble a couple of times with some of the cool activities that I did from my department chair. And so, I mean, that's what we had to do. We had to teach, you know, kind of uh, my colleague and I, uh, another teacher of mine, we just kind of, you know, closed the door and that was how we taught. I like that when we, Dan and I started this conversation, we're talking about citizenship and we're talking about like, you know, politics and voting. And then when you started, you just kind of flipped the script and it was like, well, no, citizenship is also who we reflect in the narrative. And that is, I don't know, it makes me think about 
citizenship in my teaching in a much different way. Like, I thank you, I guess, is what I'm getting down to. Like, you definitely, I feel like there's like a little light bulb that you just uh, uh, turned on in my brain. So I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. And typically, um, the way that citizenship is thought of and taught within the social studies is thought about, you know, students you know, voting, volunteering, and working on a political project, that those are all kind of acts of what a good citizen does. But a list like that fails to take into account the systemic inequities faced by young citizens and communities of color when attempting to participate as citizens. So it's like, how can we teach you? And I did this myself as a teacher. I talked and I preached about voting and the importance of voting because, you know, my ancestors, our ancestors have died for this right. But if we teach it, if we limit citizenship just to that, it's very problematic because how can we tell students that, for example, voting, that their vote is their voice when in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court weakened parts of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County v. Holder, resulting in subsequent efforts by states like the great state of Texas uh, to pass new voter ID laws. And so that results in like a civic disconnect in what youth of color learn about the roles, responsibilities, and rights of a citizen, yet they see that it does not match their actual experiences as citizens of color. And I just think sometimes about how your representatives can be so unreflective of who you are. And so, I mean, we were, not to bring up the same senator in in two podcasts in a row, but in our last podcast, we mentioned the Iowa senator who will go unnamed, who literally made the statement that only Western white civilization has contributed to the world. And like, how are you as a you know person of color in Iowa supposed to feel like voting matters when that you know, guy is probably going to win like reelection like 50 times in a row and be like 96 before his son gets elected next? Exactly. And so that's why with my research, I really focus on the construct of citizenship and the ways in which we need to reconceptualize it to make it more inclusive. Because when we teach citizenship, as you know, a legal status, which it absolutely is, but then also thinking about the rights and responsibilities of a citizen, it's very limiting and we're excluding so many students and communities. And so we need to really think about the ways that we can reconceptualize it to make it inclusive, but then also recognize that there are communities of color who've already done the work to reconceptualize it, to make it more inclusive, to include the, their experiences and their community histories. So, Michael, this seems like at some point you're going to be able to bring up gerrymandering, and I'm going to go ahead and say it wrong right now so you can correct me. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's Gary. It's gerrymandering. His name is Elbridge Gary. It's, uh... Sorry, it's like a, a, a podcast theme. It's come <laughs> up in like nine episodes now. <laughs> but I feel like we just grew up like it, maybe it's a Texas thing. I grew up in Texas. We say gerrymandering. No, you know? The, know. the issue is, <laughs> is <laughs> the term gerrymandering fell out of favor and it came back and people didn't really know how to say Elbridge Gary. The G is a hard thing. Gut uh, or... Or what's, an, what's a, a soft G word? Uh, Game of Thrones. Sorry, no, I just got done watching the season. G. That's a hard G. Oh, you gestation, want a soft G? Just, 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 is that a G? How is that the word you came up with? <laughs> well, okay, sorry. But I mean, I do think for it's another example of when we think of, um, I know that's a political legal thing, but it affects where, where votes actually matter. Um, and it's such an important part, um, whether it's districting or actual voting boundaries or things like that. Well, and so part of the reason we're having you on, besides the fact that um, you are, I'm sure, an amazing middle school teacher and have been doing great research for a long time, is because you were published in theory and research in social education. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so your article was titled, You Excluded Us for So Long and Now You Want Us to Be Patriotic? Question mark. That's a quote. 
African-American women teachers navigating the quandary of citizenship. And so you're going to discuss a little bit about your research project. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? And so I guess it's important for me to say that with my research, I really want to recognize and celebrate the wonderful things that are happening in the classroom of black women teachers. And so my research focuses on, the, like we talked about, the construct of citizenship and the many ways in which black women teachers, and I include myself, uh, reconceptualize the construct to better align with our experiences and our collective histories. And so thinking about citizenship, I argue that citizenship is a site of political and social struggle that reemerges during heightened times of civil unrest within the United States case in point right now. That's another conversation. But we've seen the qualifications for citizenship change over time throughout U.S. history to include and exclude certain groups. And while citizenship is a legal status and grants certain citizens certain rights and privileges, it's also we need to understand it as a social construct that has changed over time to exclude certain bodies from belonging and participating as legitimate members of the nation state. And although we want to believe that citizenship is colorblind and apolitical, but at its core, citizenship is a designation of membership and is centered around deciding who belongs, who doesn't, and what are the qualifications, such as race, class, gender, sexuality, religion, are required to be recognized as citizens. And so this debate of what is citizenship and who is considered a citizenship is critical within the field of social studies because a number of scholars have argued that the purpose of social studies is to instill in students a notion of democratic values and civic responsibility. Um, but unfortunately, the model of citizenship education is aimed at teaching, as we talked about earlier, a singular civic identity and a common body of political knowledge as a way to promote blind patriotism and personal responsibility. And while citizenship education has been premised on all students acquiring a common body of knowledge that unifies us as U.S. citizens, this framework for viewing citizenship does not acknowledge that the nation has systemically violated people's rights, enslaved and exploited people of color, or considered women legally to be second-class citizens. Um, and so civic education that is taught to our young people, and this includes you know, a lot of young people of color, promotes the belief that all citizens enjoy equitable access to opportunity and that the, the tools of self-governance can be used by any citizen to remedy any such threats to opportunity. But our history, along with recent events, so the, the death of countless Black Americans at the hands of law enforcement, inequities in the criminal justice system, or thinking about within schools how Black girls are being pushed out of schools, has demonstrated that my research focused on African Americans, so that African Americans continue to be positioned outside the realm of citizenship, and that we do not consistently enjoy the rights of due process and equal protection that is afforded to white citizens, and that our bodies are devalued by white supremacist structures within the U.S. And so to say all that, getting to my study, so I take all that. And so in this study, I really explore the many ways in which black women teachers teach critical notions of citizenship to their students. Um, and there's a great body of work that shows the many ways in which black women teachers historically have used the curriculum to counter racist beliefs imposed on children, on black students, and to really privilege the cultural and historical knowledge of black Americans. And so with this study, I really want to understand how African-American women social studies teachers defined and taught the construct of citizenship. And then second, I examined the ways in which black women, they challenge the construct within their classrooms to better align with their own cultural, historical and experiential knowledge as citizens of color. And so in this study, I found that the black women teachers, and so I utilized the black feminist framework, um, the black women teachers, they 
establish meaningful relationships in their schools, in their classrooms by creating and nurturing what uh, Acom and Soja refer to as communal free spaces as sites of citizenship. So these are safe spaces in both a physical and imagined sense where students of color can gather and exist as their true selves free from degradation or incrimination and while being surrounded by visions of social change and community uplift. It's, I mean, it's really fascinating. And I, I really think, yeah, like Michael said earlier, it really expands notions of citizenship when you talk about them that way and talk about them in relation to power, right? Because like if, if everyone doesn't have equal power in exhibiting or enacting their citizenship, then it's really, you know, we're not moving towards any form of a democracy that's meaningful. Um, because it's just some people making those decisions. And I know that even in classes when, you know, we discuss issues of race and you you have to discuss issues of race in American history. If you're avoiding them, then you're avoiding American history. I often even struggle as a just a white teacher understanding, like I've taught in a lot of classrooms where I've had one or two black students in the class. And I always even just in those spaces worry about them feeling burdened about like students in the class overgeneralizing anything they say in relation to, you know, black history or slavery or any issues, because it's like they're meant to like represent, you know, black people's views. And I've always like struggled with how do I help everyone understand? We're all just here to, you know, engage in these discussions, understand these issues better, understand each other better. But, you know, it's like white people have like this freedom to talk from their own complex perspective. But I don't know if they afford that to other students of color in their class. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point is that when we think about citizenship, typically, and think about civic knowledge, that history and that knowledge is coming from a white middle-class perspective. So it's seen as normative. And so that is, that is what a citizen is. And so the problem with thinking about a U.S. history curriculum is that it's very much from a Western male-centric Protestant point of view. And so so because it's not very diverse, people of color are not seen as citizens. So Ronald Takaki, the late great historian, talks about in the beginning of his book, uh, A Different Mirror History, A Multicultural History of, of the United States. He talks about being in a cab, going to speaking at a conference in Virginia, and the cab driver asked them, you know, so how long have you been in this country? And Dr. Takaki, he winces, even though he'd heard that a number of times. So he replies, all my life, I was born in the United States. And the cab driver replied that he was curious because his English was excellent. And so Dr. Takaki, instead of blaming him for not seeing him as a citizen, he instead questioned what had he learned in his U.S. history classes. So clearly he had not learned anything about Asian Americans in their history and how they were part of this country, building this country. Um, and so I think that's a problem with the way we teach history is that because it's from this narrow perspective, anyone outside that perspective is seen as is othered, uh, different and inferior. And so that's why I think that the black women teachers in my study really rejected that narrative of history, but then also that way of thinking about citizenship. They rejected it because it did not reflect their experiences or their, their history. And so what they did was using their experiences and their histories, they reconceptualized it to something that was more relevant to their students and, you know, students in their communities. So it's funny that you talk about Ronald Takaki's experience in the cab. I was just, so today we're, we're talking about identity and there's a, a video that Facing History and Ourselves did. And it's two people, they're, they're running. And uh, this woman is, it turns out that her grandparents are, are from Seoul she's getting ready and some guys like oh where are you from and she says i'm from san diego 
And he's like, well, your English is excellent. She's like, yeah, I was born here. Was it, no, where are you from? And then no. they get back and she's like, oh, I guess my parents are from, grandparents are from Seoul. And then uh, she just turns the table. She's like, well, where are you from? And he's like, I'm American. And she's mm-hmm. like, well, so you're Native American? No, no. Well, where are you from? And then she was doing some British accents when he said he was from accent. It was, it was an interesting <laughs> satirical look at, at, at that issue of what does it mean to be an American. I do recommend people look at it. And we'll make sure we put that in, in, the, in the show notes. One of the, the things that I, I think that I heard you say, you talked about the spaces. And it seemed like you weren't just talking about you know, the curriculum. You're actually physically talking about the spaces and how that is a, like a, a, a part of citizenship. Do you mind talking a little more about that? Because I, I, it was fascinating. And again, you just keep flipping the script on me. And I like it. Well, I thank you. Um, so, yeah. So, um, in my study from the TRC, one of my findings showed that the participants in my study, first, they rejected the contract of citizenship because they said that it did not apply to them as black women. And so some of the the, the, the five women, black women history teachers, they talked about events from U.S. history. So talking about the Dred Scott decision or how um, when this country was, quote unquote, founded, it was never a citizen was never meant to apply to Africans, African-Americans. And so one I got to share one quote from one of my participants. She really talked about I've never just thought about citizenship because I really don't care. And that's how I see citizenship because we aren't part of this traditional idea of citizenship. And I kind of want to say to the people in charge, what did you think? You excluded us from so long and now you want us to be patriotic. They need to understand that it looks different to us because of what we've been through. And so another participant says that, so you see this term citizen means absolutely nothing to me. I unequivocally, am re- until I am unequivocally respected for being me, um, and then will I feel that I belong to a society that recognizes me. And so because of that, and what's interesting is that a number of the participants, because they had this strong feeling, strong feelings about like rejecting the traditional notion of citizenship, they thought they didn't teach citizenship. And so really they they did teach citizenship, but they were redefining it and making it relevant to their students. And they really transformed their classrooms into these safe spaces where students were free to exist as citizens and they taught a very different uh, kind of citizenship. So the second finding in the study showed that my participants, they adopted this notion of an imagined community as a site of citizenship where they could experience belonging as citizens. So the women teachers in my studies, part of it I, in, the, in the article I talk about, they not, they not only sought out imagined communities in their own personal lives where they are citizens in these multiple different, these different spaces, such as like sorority, you know, members of sorority, church groups, community groups, things like that. But they also successfully transformed their classrooms into these imagined communities um, where the students were encouraged to adopt a communal view of the world and to see their roles as active citizens within their communities. And that's another reason why a lot of them rejected citizenship because they saw it was very individualistic. And so instead, they really embraced this idea that we are all part of this struggle. We are this community. And your job as a citizen um, within this space is to help uplift it. And they really taught that and um, there are different ways that the students really internalized that uh, throughout the study. Can you explain what you mean by imagined communities and kind of what that, that phrase means? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so free stasis comes from the work of ACOM and SOJA. And so they created these, these, these free spaces. And so these are these safe spaces they're physical spaces, so the teachers cre- transform their classrooms into these free spaces, but then also in imagined sense. So they um, really taught this idea that students were part of this larger community that, you know, kind of existed outside their, their classrooms. And I can talk about th- some examples of that in a second. 
But what's important about these free spaces is that within these classrooms, the students felt safe to to talk about what they wanted to. Um, this is where they were affirmed via the curriculum. They were free from degradation or recrimination. And they were really immersed in these visions and this rhetoric of social change and community uplift. And so through the curriculum, through their relationships with the, the teachers built with them, they created these free spaces for the students. That's really cool. And I mean, it sounds like, you know, um, that would be necessary to, especially if you're trying to address systemic issues that are problematic, that are all around you, that your classroom can create a different space. And so is the imagined part of the community, is it, is, is that like indicating that, I think you mentioned like you, you, but it's the community extends beyond the classroom or is it about reimagining kind of what that, the, the physical space of the classroom can be? Yeah, kind of both. So kind of both. So for example, one of my participants, Ms. Keller, she really, her students really internalized this idea of the imagined community as a site of citizenship. And so every time that I would go and visit her classroom, she really, first of all, with the curriculum, really made sure that she made it relevant where the students could see that they belonged and how they fit in, how their culture and their identities really fit and played a part within the American culture. But then also she really talked about this need to, like, we are a community. This community exists outside this classroom space. But then also when you leave, you're still part of this community. And so... What was interesting is every time I would go into her classrooms, I would see we would always be interrupted because former students would come in. Uh, she taught middle school history. And so her high, uh, high school students would come into the classroom and they would visit her. But then they'd also hang around and they would mentor her students. They would help teach her students. Um, it was really quite fabulous in the ways in which the students, they had free time, they're high schoolers, but they used that time to come back and give back to their community. And so although that classroom was a, you know, a, a physical space for them, they, they really recognized that they were part of it, even though they were at a different school on a different campus. Um, and the same was, in, uh, it, it was the same, similar for another one of the participants in my study, a 12th grade economics teacher. Every time I would come into her classroom, people would, from the community would come into her classroom. It was like an open door. Um, students would be presenting and then all of a sudden a community member who had just been speaking down the hall, he came in and was just listen. Former students would come in. Students who she didn't even teach would come in because she really saw her role as this idea that citizenship means, you know, giving back to the community, but also there's this relational aspect to it in that she felt like she was responsible for her students. You know, if they go and act a hot mess, then she's responsible for that. You know, these kids are my kids. So mentoring was a really important part of sustaining this community. That's really cool. I remember um, Dave Burgess, who we had on early in our podcast, like episode maybe like four or five in the show. He did, he's, he's done a whole bunch of stuff about teaching like a pirate. And I remember one time he tweeted that, you know, would your students come to your class if, if they didn't have to, would your students buy a ticket to your class? And I just thought about not that they need to buy a ticket to come to your class, but I think it's really cool when you see teachers who students connect with on such a level that they, they do want to be in that space with that teacher and they come back and they return to it because they find some kind of sense of community belonging, um, and probably even an intellectual level that, you know, they find that they, they are able to connect with new ideas, um, that can help connect them back to the space. And so first it sounds like those are great teachers usually because those are who the kids want to come back and see. Yeah. And not only did the teachers, they built these meaningful relations with the students. They made the curriculum relevant to the lives and experiences of the students. Um, but they also 
were aware of because they were black women teachers. And then three of the participants uh, were teaching in a high school, Dowager High School, that was a majority black high school. And so they were aware of the negative public perceptions that many people had of Dowager High School students based on negative race and gendered and class stereotypes of communities of color. And so Ms. Press, the 12th grade economics teacher, she admitted that she had a number of discussions, conversations with her students about what did it mean to be a, you know, a, a black man or a black woman in this society. Like citizenship within this community looks very different, but then recognizing that you know, they're 12th graders, they're going to be graduating, going out into the world. And it's not the outside world is not going to look like this community that we have in our classroom, but then also this outside community. And so having these conversations about what does it mean to be a citizen of color? um, They're very difficult conversations, but they are necessary conversations, because they had they felt like these teachers had the responsibility to prepare them, because life is not going to look like um, what they have at Dowager High School. So that's part of also thinking about the ways that these black teachers, they taught about citizenship. It's talking about the realities of being a citizen of color. It's not pretty. They didn't sugarcoat it, but they kept it real. And this knowledge is, is very critical to you know our survival as a community. Your work is really powerful, I think, because it does reframe again all these major issues. And I, it just is very reminds me a lot of Gloria Latson Billings you know, the dream keepers, which I was such a a powerful book because in education, we talk a lot about what's, what's going wrong. And she brought in these teachers who were just incredible and respected in their communities and respected by students and reading about them is almost like kind of just really incredible and empowering to see teachers who make such a difference. And I don't know. I mean, did you, did you have that same feeling kind of in these classes that I'd so much of it, it seems to be about like challenging and washing away the structures and not only in society but even maybe in education that sometimes exist that don't allow us to push back about what's happening how does that impact their teaching on a daily basis i mean did you see them doing completely different types of things or was it just that they surrounded their teaching with the types of openness to conversations and challenging and having kind of a safe space for acceptance that that made their teaching transformative because of those relationships i guess first for me is that I view the world and my research through a black feminist lens. And so what that means is that I recognize the vast knowledge and experiences of black women and how they often use those experiences to enact social change within their classrooms, but also their communities. And so we have seen throughout history attempts um, by people in power to silence or suppress the knowledge produced by oppressed groups. And so with my research, I really wanted to put the experiences and the voices of the teachers front and center and to allow people to see the wonderful things that are happening in these classrooms that often get ignored or trivialized. And so with that said, another part of uh, my article, I think was interesting, or the data set, this data that I have is that I chose two different research sites. So one was Dowager High School. It was a majority black high school in a majority black community. A large majority of the teachers were black teachers. The community was was majority African-American community. And then the second site, Compton Middle School, was in a pretty diverse community. But the teaching force and the administrators at the school were majority white. There were fewer black teachers. And so it's interesting the way in which these teachers, they taught very similarly, but there were differences. So, for example, in Dowager High School, the way that these teachers taught, they didn't have to teach 
behind a closed door. What they were teaching, the conversations that they were having, it was open door. And this was what kind of was being reflected throughout the school. They felt comfortable and their administrators supported having these kinds of conversations and teaching citizenship in this way. Whereas I felt that the teachers at the, the middle school who were the fewer black teachers, they really when they had to shut the door and they had to, the students knew that they were getting this knowledge that was true, but People didn't want them to have this knowledge. And so it was almost like it was their little secret. They were purposeful. They were unapologetically teaching from this perspective. But it had to be kind of on the down low because administrators, other teachers, they've made efforts, try to make efforts to suppress this type of knowledge. It kind of reminds me of when you think of school integration in the United States. And when it's taught from a very much a white perspective, you look at in a, at school integration, it's just this purely positive thing. Look, we're integrating schools. But I always remember looking at like, well, Bell Hooks talked about her experience with integration. And she's like, well, I went from a, high, a black high school, segregated high school, where I was supported to a primarily white high school where I didn't feel supported. And there's, this isn't, that's not just a story about schools. That's a story about, you know, many institutions, how they changed in society. And you just think about like people like I grew up in Oklahoma and Clara Looper was a classroom teacher who worked with students to desegregate and do sit-ins in 1958. So this is well before the Greensboro sit-ins and they desegregated Katz drugstore in, in the 1950s. And there's no way that she could have done that in an integrated high school in Oklahoma yeah. in the 50s. She could only do that because she was in a primarily black high school with support from mm-hmm. that community. And it kind of just shows like how political teaching is and how it has always been. And, you know, it, that's really interesting. I just I, rethinking about it from that perspective is completely different than citizenship as voting, citizenship as um, participating in a local clubs or whatever it is. Yeah. No. And I mean, you brought up a great point looking at just the history of integration. And you're absolutely right. It is very one sided. Um, but if you read the work of oh Vanessa Siddle Walker, uh, her book, Their Highest Potential, is a fabulous, powerful read because it really talks about black teachers within the black community. So thinking about the different ways that black teachers taught notions of citizenship, but then also really uplifted these students. And so it was really, really fabulous and really, really powerful. And then also looking at other black women teachers, Nanny Helen Burroughs, she kind of did the same thing with that famous high school that she taught at in DC. Um, So there is this history. Amanda, what advice would you give? And I feel like that there's almost two audiences here, right? There's black female teachers, but there's also just other teachers in general. What advice would you give to other teachers to to reframe this whole discussion of citizenship? That's heavy. Yes, it is. Yeah, no, I guess I'll say this first. And so for me, for this study, I think it's important for people to note, to recognize, to acknowledge the fact that the participants in the study, they really described experiencing what uh, Salome Shatillet Uh, referred to as civic estrangement. So the sense that although as African-Americans we have legal citizenship and we have these rights, we are not seen or treated as legitimate members of the nation state. And civic estrangement occurs in part because of our exclusion from public memory, which help, like we've talked about, it helps form a national civic identity, but also in the ways in which certain bodies are privileged and valued over others. And so proof that the struggle continues is manifested in the ways in which Um, African-Americans, we must publicly state and demand that Black Lives Matter while facing pushback and criticism and even violence for publicly engaging in free speech, which is protected by the Bill of Rights. 
but also recent events in Charlottesville, Virginia, along with actions and the policies put forward by the Trump administration, is really making uh, efforts to reassert the designation of citizen that it's once again only meant to privilege whites as a collective group while sub- uh, subjugating non-white bodies. So I think it's important for us to recognize and acknowledge that this, is, you know, this exists. But then also with that said, I sound very pessimistic, but I mean, Black feminist scholars and activists, they remind us that these experiences of struggle really create the conditions in which Black women, te- you know, Black women throughout history, but also in the present day, engage in these acts of resistance. And so when I talk about these Black teachers and what they're doing in their classrooms, we must recognize it as, you know, the, you know recognize it as acts of citizenship. Um, so when they are rejecting traditional notions of citizenship that ignores their, the histories and experiences of African-Americans, they also reimagine the possibilities of citizenship as active, but then also based within multiple communities. We should recognize those as political acts of critical citizenship by these black women teachers. And so from this study, one thing I really hope that people take away from it is to really take heed of the practices of these Black women teachers, but also Black women teachers throughout history that we've talked about, and how they are creating these free spaces within their classrooms, these safe spaces where students can exist as citizens and also as human beings. And I think more than ever, we really need that now. Students need that. And while in the social studies, we use the term citizen and citizenship, we need to make sure that we are not teaching it solely as something that's exclusive and that we make efforts to uh, redefine and reimagine the possibilities of who is a citizen and what does citizenship look like, but also recognize the many ways in which citizens of color and students and youth are actually engaging as critical citizens. So if you think about social media and how students are engaging in critical patriotism in social media through hashtag activism um, and all these different ways, you know, coming out on YouTube as undocumented or, you know, thinking about celebrating queer identity on social media. I think these we need to recognize these as acts of, you know, citizenship and act, uh, active forms of citizenship. Yeah, but then also we need to teach citizenship, like I said, as inclusive and a recognition of how people belong and participate within multiple communities. And then just inspire students as future citizens, as citizens in training to use their voice and to take action and to help create a more equitable community um, in society. And I think we need that more than ever now. Amanda, thank you so much for, for, for chatting with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, where can our listeners uh, find you and your work online? That is an excellent question. I have a Google Scholar page, and now that I figured out how Twitter works, I am tweeting a lot more, and I just yes. learned how to tweet comments out. So I'm at Dr. Amanda Liz Vick. That's okay. my Twitter handle, I think. You can find me there. We, Wait, we will you, get... you learned how to tweet comments out? I know. Yesterday, I was like, you know what? I see people tweeting at each other. Like, how do you do that? And so I figured out, like, you press this button, and then I can, like, tweet back at people. So, like, the other day, I tweeted back to someone who wanted, uh, who wrote an article about women's equality or something, uh, getting the right to vote. And I said, oh, no, it was a podcast that talked about women's suffrage. And I said, this was a lovely podcast, but unfortunately, black women didn't get the right to vote till 1965. You know, hashtag intersectionality. So I did that, and uh, yes, I learned how to do that. So now I'm trying to tweet even more. Congratulations. There we go. We will see you. And if you would like to add the hashtag SSChat on any of those tweets, then we will see them in the social studies community. I think I know how to do that now. All right. There we go. So we will get all of that linked along with your article, but we will add that all on our show notes.
At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something creative, fun, and education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. And if you, you can add a- us. Yes. You can add us and, and use hashtags to Absolutely. let us know anything that we're doing right or wrong. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you want to be. Bonus points if you have a friend at us. Also, yeah. leave us a five-star review. My fridge is currently bare, and I would like, you know, accolades. And we print them out and put them on our fridges. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. <laughs> and I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. Okay, cool.